I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome, friends. Welcome, all. Welcome, ladies. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome, folks. Uh, this is Theology Unplugged. We're coming to you from the Credo House. I am with uh, Tim and Sam here in studio. Ready to continue our discussion on hell. Um, and, and we'll just jump right into it, if that's all right with you guys. Yeah, that's okay with Absolutely. me, Absolutely. All right. Uh, last time, we, we, we introduced a controversy that has been termed Hell's Gate, uh, or Hellgate, or Rob Bellgate. I, I don't know. But it, it is a controversy that has been sparked uh, by the publication of a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell, which he, he's not really producing anything new. I think it's just that he's a popular pastor. He is seen as somewhat within the evangelical fold by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And therefore, a, a, a conflict within evangelicalism about the doctrine of hell. And he has seemingly, um, at least provocatively, suggested through interviews, through the book, through promos of the book, that God will ultimately... Uh, save everybody. Mm-hmm. That love will win in the end, and everybody will make it to heaven. Uh, this is Sam. This is called universalism, right? Yes. Um, so this this term was was made in the last week or so. Like this universalism thing, just in response to, me, to like you're some. What, what are you, you talking just, about? You man? just jump in and say it. No, now, I'm the host. I'll ask you questions. Okay, okay. I, so, I, I see so how Tim, it works around when was, here. was this term just introduced? No, it was not. <laughs> Thank you for thinking of the question, Michael. No, this is definitely a long-standing conversation that's been going on about Scripture. I mean, we see quotes from people from the third, fourth, fifth century discussing these topics, and so this is nothing new. What is new is uh, the popular influence of uh, of just the way that our world is wired today. And like a guy like Rob Bell uh, does have a lot of influence. A lot of his video series are used in churches all across the world. Uh, people see him as a as a, a nice speaker, a good guy, a guy that they you know like to hear from. And so, uh, so what's bringing all this about is that we're having to really stop and say, okay, we've been following this guy for quite some time through some of his videos, but now we have to really talk about this doctrine and see uh, what's going on here. Um, universalism, that's that's one option that's put forth. Uh, so, Michael, what is people, universalism? All people will ultimately make it to heaven. Okay, Universalism, it, it may be that uh, here on the earth they'll all make it, or they go for a short time of punishment in hell. Hell turns into kind of like a purgatory in the Catholic understanding. You've got three components. You've got heaven, hell, and the middle place, purgatory. Well, purgatory does eventually, from Catholic theology, get vacated because the reason why you're in purgatory is to get ready for heaven. They describe it as kind of like a washing up before dinner. You know, Once you're washed up, you go on to heaven. This is universalism in this sense could turn hell into a type of purgatory. It's just the 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 punishment, yes, 
but it's only for a short period of time. So it it all works out in the end. So the people who are in hell realize they don't want to be there anymore, and then they find a way to get into heaven. And and I think that would be the most popular one that's going to come up. I mean, that's just that's the easiest one because we do want people to punish. But oh no, not not so much. You know, I yeah. remember the Bill Cosby uh, the special back in the eighties. Probably nobody's seen it, but I I've got the DVD and it's just hilarious. You know, Bill Cosby at his best. But at one point he's talking about whenever he's punishing his kid. You know, his wife comes in. And she says, get Johnny, whatever his name is, you know. He, he did such and such. And so he goes in there and starts spanking him. She said, no, 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 not that bad. <laughs> and it, it's kind of like that. We, we yeah. want him in hell. Get him. No, no, get him out now. Yeah. That's kind of, I think, the best case scenario for most people. Mm. And there's also, just might mention, uh, uh, the extreme or radical view of universalism that would even argue that Satan and his demons will eventually uh, be reconciled and somehow uh, restored to their former state from which they had fallen as uh, as holy angels of God. And and I, I remember when I was in college, I'd just become a believer and encountered this girl that I was talking to, and she told me that all week she'd been praying that Satan would trust Christ as her Savior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that was a nice... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't prayed that yet, but I, I do. Will, I think, did, my son, not very long ago, so... What's that? I think Will did the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. Which raises another topic for another program. (laughs) Are are there certain prayers that we are not permitted to pray? (laughs) That's right. But uh, So universalism is definitely uh, an age-old view. Uh, Then another one that that isn't quite as as extreme, I guess I'd say. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to up a quote of Jerome here. Okay. That he says, Jerome, the 4th century, says... Or fifth century. I know. I know that most pers- people understand by the story of Nineveh and its king. This was an interpretation of the of Nineveh in the day that ultimate forgiveness of the devil and all rational creatures is at stake. Mm. Which is, you know, the the multiple layer of meaning. But it's just interesting to say this isn't something completely new. Yeah, the Jerome believed that. Yeah. And then the other view would be annihilationism would be another view. Um, and then what annihilationism basically says is not that everyone gets to heaven, but that those who are in hell will, that God in his graciousness will just destroy them. So they may be in hell for a little while, but they are people. So a lot of annihilationists will have a Christian view that says you must believe in Jesus as your savior. Jesus is the only way to heaven and, uh, and all those things that we'd say are orthodox, but would say those people who reject Christ, who are in hell, ultimately in God's compassion, he just destroys them so that they don't have to suffer forever. Which raises all sorts of interesting questions when you think about it. Uh, The concept, and it's important for people to understand, the concept of annihilation, uh, there are uh, an, an increasing number, I would say, of solidly evangelical believers who are embracing annihilationism. Of course, several years ago, what really sparked the discussion among the, in the evangelical world was John Stott, who um, I think he just recently turned 90, one of the great evangelical pastors and commentators in Britain, uh, has tentatively embraced annihilationism, in which he says that, yes, everyone who leaves this life without Christ will be judged that there will be punishment, there will be judgment, there will be suffering in proportion to uh, their sin, uh, which is determined by the degree of revelation that they received, and that not all suffering or punishment is equal or as long, 
obviously, we, he would argue that someone such as a Stalin will suffer uh, greater and for a longer period of time than uh, someone who perhaps dies at the age of 15 in a horrible car accident. Um, and But at the end of the just period of suffering, as you said, Tim, the final act of judgment is the extinction or the annihilation of their being. Now, it raises a, a couple of questions. If um, they suffer in hell the full weight of their sin as justice demands, then the question becomes, why wouldn't God at that point let them into heaven? Mm-hmm. In other words, if, in fact, hell, as you said, Michael, is a form of purgatory, once they have suffered that which justice demands, would they not then be candidates for a merciful entrance into heaven. Uh, the annihilationists say no. They say the actual annihilation or extinction of their being is itself the final act of the judgment against them. But in a sense, as Tim, I don't know if you intentionally used the words, you said that it would be gracious and compassionate of God to mm-hmm. annihilate them. And in a sense it would because it puts them, if we can say it this way, and I'm not saying this flippantly at all because this is a serious matter Mm -hmm. in a sense it puts them out of their misery Mm -hmm. annihilation puts them out of their misery and so you would almost have annihilation being an act of kindness because it terminates the conscious suffering that they had been enduring up to that point but do we ever find in scripture a, a description of hell in which the judgment or the final punishment is ever portrayed as anything other than an expression of wrath because if annihilation actually puts them out of their misery, would that not in fact be an expression of love and compassion? Mm-hmm. So annihilation has multiple problems, it seems to me. Uh, on the one hand, as I said, if they have already endured the full punishment for their sin, why then would they not be admitted into heaven? Yeah. And if in fact annihilation of their being is the final act of judgment, it would almost be interpreted more as an expression of grace and kindness than it would an act of wrath and judgment. Well, and this is where Augustine, uh, from the 4th century or so, uh, really looks at this, and and he looks at it scripturally. Uh, His main argument along these lines from Scripture is Matthew 25, 46, uh, where where it says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And what he's what, what his argument is, and it's a popular argument today too, is that if if basically Scripture is referring to heaven as eternal life, and you believe that, and then when Scripture refers to hell as eternal punishment, basically if you're going to believe that heaven is forever, you must believe that hell is forever because if you because they're used in the same sentence. So if you reject eternal punishment, you must reject eternal life. If you accept eternal life, you must accept eternal punishment. Is is Augustine and I would say Scripture is mentioning that as well. Okay, well, <clears throat> um, some of you listening to this will know the reference I'm making. I'm not going to be direct and talk about it because I don't think that's that's worthy of our conversation. But Sam, you're a pastor, Tim. You've been a pastor. I've been a pastor. Mm-hmm. Pastorally, we, we are talking to someone who is in his 50s, 60s years old. His son has died before him. He knows, you know, the best of his knowledge, his son died an unbeliever. Loved his son. I can't imagine anything like that. You know, those of you who have children, that is the, that is the biggest 
trials of our lives is dealing with the love that we have for our children and the the uh, t- turns that they can take. And to, to imagine your son in hell forever, your daughter in hell forever, um, that that's hell right yeah, there. Rips I mean, your heart out. Well, and it's the statement is, how can heaven be heaven if you know people are in hell? Yeah. Too. Sure. Now, and that, that's a good place to go, but let me, let me take this one step further. If now we have just said, okay, there, there's universalism out there, and there is also universalism that says Jesus' blood will pay for everybody eventually, whether it's a purgatory-type hell or whatever, that's one option. It's kind of the mission, you know, what about the people in the small island who never heard of Jesus? Did yeah. all of them go to hell or, you know, was there some other well, way? Well, and, and as a pastor, here I come. Here's option number one. Yeah. You've got universalism. Option, option number two, you've got annihilationalism. Option number three is eternal judgment. Now, now, I think what seems to be being put forth with a lot of this controversy is, hey, there's lots of options out there. You know, I mean, be pastoral. Don't be traditional help people to feel better um, and take this guy whose son is, let's just say for the sake of argument, did die an unbeliever. Yeah. Um, make this guy feel better. Yeah. I mean, if Jesus, if Jesus, is the, if Jesus is the hope of the world, what hope are you giving to this dad by telling him about hell? Is there that much controversy? Is that the issue? Some people have said that there's, it's just the whole history of the church is, undecided on this this is not an issue of orthodoxy it is an issue that we can discuss and you can kind of choose well when you talk about being pastoral there is no we could put other language to it we could say what's the most loving thing that you can do for a man who's facing that kind of uh, of problem and, and trying to wrestle with the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse who who died in unbelief but the most loving thing that we can do um, is to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not compassionate or loving to mislead or to provide false hope um, or to give somebody an expectation um, that, in fact, the Word of God does not warrant. So as difficult as it is, we have to, we have to maintain the position that the most loving thing that can be done for any individual is to speak in compassionate and gentle but also very convincing terms the truth of God's word. And I I still come back and, and I know that and I'm not saying this because I think it's going to alleviate that father's anguish. Nothing ultimately will until he's in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This this side of heaven that is an agony with which all of us live because all of us know and have friends family members, loved ones, acquaintances, colleagues that we know have left this life in unbelief. The, the anguish uh, may vary given the, 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 the closeness and the intimacy of the relationship that you had, but we all have to face this. And so I'm not suggesting that what I'm going to say puts that anguish to rest. It doesn't. But I think what we have to come back to again and again and again is the simple fact that no one goes to hell except those who deserve to. What we're saying by that is hell is never undeserved and therefore it is never unjust. Now, like I said, does that relieve and alleviate the the torment and the emotional distress in thinking that my son or my spouse or my friend or a parent is suffering justly? 
Well, probably not entirely. I mean, it might help to know that um, that the God of heaven and earth will do that which is right. But I do think we have to remind ourselves of that truth, that the God that we believe is the only God who presents and reveals himself in Scripture will do what is right. He will do what is just. No one will be mistreated. No one will be treated unjustly. No one will suffer something they don't deserve. And we have to keep coming back. That has to be our default position because it's the clear teaching of God's Word. But again, pastorally, is that going to make that person smile at you and say, hey, and I feel a lot better now. I can rest well at night, and I don't. I won't live thinking about the eternal destiny of my child any longer. No, it won't do that. Mm-hmm. But truth will have, I think, um, um, a healing, long-term healing effect on the human soul. And uh, I think, and I, I pray that the effect of truth and the power of the Spirit will bring a measure of. Uh, rest to us in this life as we contemplate the eternal destiny of of the lost in the next life. Uh, mm. We have we really don't have any other options. No, yeah. we we could create an alternative world and say, well, I'm going to develop a system of theology and and eternality that is compatible with my preferences, but it has no correspondence to the Word of God. I suppose we could do that, but will that will that really bring comfort? to an individual um, who's lost a loved one under these circumstances? Probably not. No. And folks, I would say, too, I mean, as uh, us who are living right now, that this should cause us to pray more uh, fervently for for our loved ones to act more. You know, instead of ignoring this doctrine, I mean, it, it makes me want to spend the next hour just praying for my kids and praying for their salvation. And, uh, you know, so we should we should not run away from this, but we should act accordingly and not try and pretend that we are in this fake world. So I, I agree with Sam on that. Okay, talking a little bit about from the scriptures because you know this is this is obviously something, folks. We've tried to show you we're not up here in, in this room speaking from uh, a an objective standpoint. We we've got people, we know people. We don't we don't understand everything, but we trust the Lord and we believe the Bible. What does the Bible say? I'm going to bring up another passage. Sam, last time you talked about Revelation chapter was it 14? Yes, nine through eleven. Um, this time I want to look at Matt, and, and you talked about Revelation, Revelation 19. 19. And then I also did, uh, we talked about Revel- or Matthew 25, 46 a little bit as well. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about Matthew chapter 25. This is this comes in the section where you have the final judgment, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, uh, speaking sometimes of the separation of the, the sheep and the goats. Um, you have in verse 41, he says... Then he, Christ, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Now notice here, it says the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now we could talk about the implications of that, being prepared for the devil and the angels, but I think it has to do with the same type of judgment that is being brought about on these people, the devil and his angels. Eternal fire is used there. Now, now that's important because whenever we're talking about this word eternal, a lot of times, especially those in the annihilationalist camp, will say, well, that just means for ages or for a very long time. 
but there's no reason to take that as eternal. Or they will say this. This is more popular. The fire is eternal, but the judgment is not. Okay, that's the, that's kind of the most of the, from my standpoint. That's what I hear the most. The eternal, and that's kind of the fire the, is eternal, but the judgment is not. And that's kind of the argument that John Stott makes too. He says uh, the fire itself. This is uh, from his Evangelical Essentials, page three sixteen. The fire itself is termed eternal and unquenchable, but it would be very odd if what is thrown into it proves indestructible. Our expectation would be the opposite. It would be consumed forever, not tormented forever, ever. Hence, it is the smoke, evidence that the fire has done its work, which rises forever and ever. But then, uh, but in response to that, Robert Peterson is in the Journal of Evangelical Theological. Well, let me response to it, respond to it first. Well, I was going to cite an authority, but if you want to <laughs> respond to that, you're more than welcome to. Well, let me continue on with that because that was good right okay. there to show how this uh, the eternal fire linking eternal fire with eternal judgment. Sometimes people uh, disconnect the two. But in Matthew chapter 41, it says it's prepared for the devil and his angels the eternal fire. If you go down just to verse 46 talking about those people who were not followers of Christ, those people who did not do his will. In verse 46, it says, these will go away into eternal punishment. Now, it's very difficult to not link the two, eternal fire just a few verses before with the eternal punishment. Whatever the fire is, the imagery of the fire, whatever it is that's trying to be said there is linked to the eternal punishment. Both of these are eternal. As the fire is eternal, so the punishment is eternal. And any time whenever you have the word eternal fire coming in there, that is a... a uh, I, I'm not so sure I would call it a metonymy, uh, but it is a linking of the the type of of fire, punishment, hurt with the judgment itself. You can't separate the two, and to separate it and say that there is there is this cosmic, epic fire that's burning for eternity, but there's not going to be people in it for eternity, just misses the whole point. Yeah, uh, of what the fire is about. Well, and that's actually, and, and uh, one thing, okay. one more thing, yeah, one more go, thing. Go ahead, bro. I, I'm not saying that the fire is literal here. I don't know. John Walver took it as literal. You know, the, mm-hmm. the the fire is literal. That's not the issue, is it? No, it's not because you have other texts that talk about hell and it's described as eternal darkness. Yeah. So how do you have darkness and fire coexisting? Mm-hmm. So in a in a bottomless pit. <laughs> yeah. So it, and it's entirely possible, and and and. Wonderful evangelical Bible-believing scholars disagree on this point as to whether the punishment is, uh, whether the fire is literal or whether the punishment is physiological or whether it is psychological and emotional. And and to me, that's really not the major point. The point is whether it is just um, the exact, whether these are metaphors or analogies. You know, someone would say the point of fire is, is that what fire does to the body, so does judgment do to the soul. So it may just be analogous, but that's not the real issue. No. Tim, mm. you were going to bring up another scholar. Yeah. Well, A true Pete- scholar as you diminished <laughs> no. the role of Sam no. by um, virtue of diminishing me. No, I, I adhere to both of your scholarship and uh, <laughs> applaud you for, for your hard work. And uh, But Robert Peterson says, Our expectation would be that the smoke would die out after the fire had finished its work. How could the smoke from the fire rise forever if its fuel had been consumed? And the fire smoke going up forever was from the Revelation passage we talked about. That's yes, correct. Smoke goes up forever and ever. Yeah. So even if we're talking metaphorical here, what uh, Peterson is saying is that well, we do need to see that if smoke is rising.
rising up, that probably means that the fuel that is burning is not being extinguished. One more thing. Um, sometimes we have people who will talk about this word eternal and say that the word eternal itself doesn't mean forever and ever. It means just for a time period or a very long extended period of time. So some people would say that after a while that hell goes out, the hell is gone. Now, one of the things that I did is I looked up and I, I was showing you this earlier, Sam, on my, um, on my Bible works. Uh, software, the Lowell Nida lexicon. And one of the things that's wonderful about Lowell Nida is that if you search on a word, uh, a Greek word, this particular Greek word, it will show you all of the different words that could have been used in this case that had kind mm. of this idea of eternal or for a very long time. What's that resource again? <clears throat> Lowell Nida. Can you smell, spell it just for L O U W dash N I D A? I think. Okay. But whenever you look at this, you um, see all of these different words for eternal that could have been used. And the particular word that is used is the one that fits best for all eternity. I mean, it, it can rarely mean anything else. Now, in a strict context, maybe. But the thing is, there's no better word to choose if you're trying to communicate that this goes on forever and ever. Okay, that's number one point. Number two point is that I think, I th- myself, I think that if you do away with the eternity of hell, you have to do away with the eternity of heaven, don't you? Well, that was Augustine's point uh, that I read from uh, Matthew 25, saying that, uh, that yeah, I mean, if, if they're both mentioned in the same verse in, in 46 and uh, elsewhere in Scripture. And these go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Yeah, that if you accept one, you must accept the other, or life is not eternal. Now, how shall I play the devil's advocate? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I know it. what Stott would say in response to that. Okay. Uh, and other annihilationists. They would say that the eternality of the punishment is that it is um, irreversible. Mm. In other words, what is eternal about is the punishment in the, in the terms of its effect. In other words, once the annihilation occurs, it lasts forever and ever. There's no reversing of it. Uh, what they would deny is that the eternality is of conscious punishing. In other words, it's not so much the act of God continuing to punish the, the the lost, but the effect of their punishment is eternal in the sense that it will never be reversed or overcome. That's what an annihilationist would say in response to that. Now, mm-hmm. is that a, a good exegesis of the terms and of the parallel language? I'm not convinced it is, but that's how they would respond to, to that contention. So henceforth, with life, they would just say that that pronouncement of you have life that is a eternal pronouncement, so to speak. Yeah. In other words, it's that the life that the, that the saved experience will never cease, and the punishment that the to which the lost are subjected will never cease, in the sense that it will never be overcome or reversed. They're, but not necessarily that they will consciously experience it forever and ever. Yeah. Okay. Well, whenever we come down to this again, I mean, here's whenever you say this, and you say names like Stott. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we'll start is really the primary one for you. It, it's origin because you love origin, even though you know we, we, I, there we are continually aspects, try to put him in heretic's well, corner, and you continually put, <laughs> put words in my mouth. There are aspects about origin's view of scripture and the spirit that I love. Okay, I'm and there are, and there are other uh, annihilations like Philip Edgecombe Hughes, uh, which many of our listeners may not know that name, but very prominent New Testament evangelical scholar wrote one of the. Top five commentaries on Second Corinthians. What one of the best commentaries on Hebrews? Taught at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for a considerable mm. period of time. So there are representative evangelicals who've embraced annihilationism. Um, possibly you've heard of William Barclay. He is uh, he was a universalist. Daily Bible mm-hmm. study series. Which uh, what last time I saw, that's still the most popular commentary out there. Because I guess because it's a little compact design and easy to access. But it's been around for a while. He was a universalist. Believed everybody yeah. was going to make it happen. Now, having said that, l- listen to this. He- here's the deal. I sometimes work off of referred belief, okay? I can't study everything perfectly. I love it whenever you have good, strong scholars that come in. Sam, I was, okay, here, I'm going to admit it. I was anti-charismatic all through the 90s, okay? I thought you, you who were charismatic were demon-possessed. But here's what happens is I have people like Sam Storms. I have people like um, Craig Keener. I have people like J.P. Moreland. I have people like John Piper all of a sudden come and throw flies in my ointment that makes me reconsider everything, right? And all of a sudden, what I would not ever consider, and this is before I got into seminary and started studying, so calm down, folks. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would have labeled them according to just this view, but now all of a sudden, respected people are coming into my life and saying, no, I, I am, and I, I'm a thoughtful person. I'm like, well, okay, I need to rethink this then. Is that what we're supposed to do here? Is, is that what's going to happen? You've got Rob Bell coming in. You've got people that we're bringing up, John Stott, William Barclay, uh, Philip Hughes, and they say, oh, it is really an option. I'm going to refer to their scholarship and go ahead and, and move in that direction. Is it an option within Christian orthodoxy? Boy, that's a, that's a big question. Um, uh, wow, how do we respond to that? An option in the sense that do these individuals make a, a concerted and conscientious effort to explain these texts in a way that would make annihilationism uh, palatable or acceptable? Yes, they do. They make an attempt to do that. Um, are they successful? I don't believe that they are. I think it's fairly clear that they do not. Um, and, and it's important along these lines for us to say, we believe John Stott is a wonderful Christian man, born-again man. Uh, John Wenham, who was an annihilationist. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, now with the Lord. Stephen Travis. Uh, others who have embraced this. We're not saying they are not Christian men. We're not saying that they are, because of this view, uh, unregenerate. Now, I think there are some doctrines, obviously, that that, uh, people would reject that would, by definition, exclude them from the kingdom of heaven. But I don't think this is one of them. It's kind of like... So, well, would you say that we draw... 
with universalism, we're going to draw a pretty strong line in the sand and say we we are not talking the same Christian language because there there appears to be no need for a savior, no no need really for anything if you have well, universalism. Well, a certain type of universalism, but I predict the type of universalism that's going to try to arise within this this evangelical you know, Hell's Gate type stuff is the type of universalism that says Christ ultimately saves everybody. And so Christ is needed. Yeah, so it's it's a nuance. So if we're going to do concentric circles, perhaps we're going to do uh, what we would say is orthodoxy, then the next circle out would be annihilationism, then probably the next circle out would be some form of a Christian universalism, then the next circle out will be just generic universalism. Yeah, and then if you ask where's the line in the sand drawn on these things, it's like Sam says, I uh, that's one thing that I I don't I have it's no hard. idea. Yeah. I mean, can somebody who comes up and says I'm convinced of universalism now, but uh, you know I love Jesus and and I'm uh, committed to Him and I recognize my sin and I call out to Him for forgiveness and He's the only forgiveness that people can have and everybody's going to eventually make it. I mean, he, here's what I like in that too. It's like whenever my sister came up to me and said, Michael, if I commit suicide, can I still go to heaven? Yeah. You know, I mean, what do you say to something like that? And unfortunately, she did end up committing suicide. Yeah. My, yeah. my mom came to me and she, she came to me in private and she said, Michael, um, tell Angie that if she commits suicide, she'll go to hell. I said, Mom, I can't do that. Out of hope that she yeah, that would prevent yeah. her from Yeah, my mom didn't believe that. Yeah. But she wanted to prevent something so so terrible. And sometimes I think we do approach these things with great fear. Let's tell everybody they're gonna be damned if they don't believe within the lines of Christian orthodoxy or historic Christian orthodoxy. So therefore we talk about it. And I'm not comfortable going there right now, but I am comfortable saying you're falling outside the lines of the historic Christian faith with regards to this issue. So, so what we could say, perhaps, is is I wouldn't go to Rob Bell's church if I lived in his town. I, I wouldn't, you know, don't read his books as if they're the gospel. Uh, you know, I believe that he's wrong. I'm taking a stance that I believe that he is dead wrong on Scripture. And the hell but, that he's denying he's going to be burning in. No, no, well, no, but what I would say is is uh, I, I'm not even going to judge his eternal state. You know, if he's trusting in Christ as his Savior, uh, I I would say that he's not going to perish. He'll he'll live forever. But so so you know, I'm saying don't 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 really listen to him. Don't go to his church. All these things. But I'm not even going to judge him on this issue. But this does raise another huge question that we can't address in, in the few minutes we have left, and that is, does universalism, not annihilationism, does universalism, or I guess we could throw in annihilationism, but let's just keep it to universalism. Does universalism ultimately? undermine the gospel itself does universalism entail a concept of god such that the cross of christ ultimately becomes unnecessary and i think the two options one is to say yes absolutely if everyone makes it to heaven why in the world would you need a savior at all mm-hmm. but then i think then the second option would be no it is the cross that was so vast and profound and deep that you know it just it, it's like a tsunami mm-hmm. that sweeps over the entire earth and no matter what you believe you will be included yeah and and of course that still raises massive questions about the nature and the character of god and the existence of whether retributive wrath is a, is an inherent necessary attribute in the character of god well and why even mention eternal death why even mention you know anything why why not just say let's just party from here on exactly. out because of the cross but by the way one other and I, I know we're coming to the end here but i think i want to bring up one more point 
for our listeners that I think will help them because there are such caricatures of the concept of hell that we embrace and the, the notion of eternal punishment, one of which is that uh, hell is filled with people who are crying in repentance and wanting to be released and have humbled themselves before God, have come to a recognition of the horror of their sin and are uh, are truly uh, longing to be set free. Like like on Superman 1. No, where, not like any yes, illustration yes, yes. of superheroes. Where General Zod and his three companions are in the the uh, phantom zone in the glass. And That's going, Superman 2. Me. No, it's at the beginning oh, of Superman no. 1 and then Superman oh, man, 2. Man, I'm in the room. Of, no, <laughs> All right, no. but remember, remember they're flying away. Forgive yes, me, yes, forgive me. Yes, and here's... here's a very simple statement that um, we, maybe we, we probably won't be able to get into, and it's this. I think the concept or the idea of eternal punishment will be less objectionable once you embrace the concept of eternal sinning. Because I believe that the New Testament and the Bible as a whole gives us warrant <laughs> to affirm that those who are consigned to hell continue, and in fact, not simply continue, but expand and deepen and intensify in their hatred of God and in their rebellion and in their disdain for him, such that the continuing punishment to which they are subjected is the just recompense for the continued sinning in which they are consciously engaged. So the idea that that uh, our God is portrayed as um, refusing the plea and the repentant cries of countless multitudes in hell for eternity is simply not in the Bible. Uh, People who are consigned to hell not only are confirmed in their sinful rebellion and their hatred of all that God is, but they actually are intensified and uh, further hardened in their commitment to repudiate all that is true and all that is beautiful. Uh, Folks, this has not been an easy two weeks to take a break from the Calvinism one. We'll get back to the Calvinism one next week. But this is something important. I mean, it's something that it's, it's we celebrate the justice of God. We believe the word of God. We trust in him. He's not on a divine tribunal that we have put him on the witness stand and say, give account of yourself or on the defendant seat. Um, and, and that's, what I think, where we've got to end this. And that's ultimately where it all comes back to. There are things that we have to trust. His, there are things that are, that are difficult in our own inclinations to believe. But his throne was built by him, not yeah. by us. Yeah. No votes in truth here, so we don't take a vote at the end of Theology Unplugged to see whether hell exists. But uh, be compassionate about it. Be compassionate. Be kind. Be tender. Be be sensitive to the difficulties here. But uh, d- but don't shy away from truth. Don't shy away from it. All right. We'll uh, continue next week on Theology Unplugged, talking about uh, we are on irresistible grace. Is that right? Yes. Sir. Okay. For Tim and Sam, I'm Michael. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. 
Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.